everybody. Hi, friends. Well, from beautiful Portland, Oregon. It's Thank God I'm Atheist. The podcast. I'm Frank Feldman. And I'm Dan Beecher. And coming up on the show today, Dan, we're going to have... Well, we're here at this conference. We're at the Conference on Death, Grief, and Belief, which we've been uh, telling you about yeah. for months now. And so for the second half of the show, we're going to have some stuff that has to do with that. Yeah. Going on. So, yeah. Um, it's a little bit TBA, to be honest. <laughs> TBH. TBH. To be honest. Oh. Oh, you're funny. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Frank's right. old, you guys. He doesn't know all the lingo. Well, you just be know. like TV. I was like to be determined. Yeah. Or oh yeah. See, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. All right, Dan. Yeah. Uh, we know that this Pope, Pope Francis, he of the Catholic Church. Oh yeah, that one. The, the great that Pope. The, the, <laughs> the great Pope Francis is the Pope Catholic. I believe he is. Well. Yeah. Uh, also turns out that, and we know this, but we have more information now. Oh. Uh, he is very concerned about the environment. He's, he's sure. All, I, I think you could say he's an environmentalist. Yeah. We've heard rumblings about this throughout his popedom. Yeah. I don't know that he's ever done much about it, but we've heard him talk about it. He likes to talk about the environment. Um, and this is actually uh, from a, this is interesting. He didn't even have to show up to the EU Youth Conference in Prague. He just sent a letter. Oh, that's That nice. was read to the participants. <laughs> uh, and in it, he says, um, it is urgent to reduce consumption, not only of fossil fuels, but also of many superfluous things. And also, in certain areas of the world, it is convenient to consume less meat. This can also help save the environment, he says. Oh, my goodness. Um, the Pope... Uh, urged the participants uh, to break this self-destructive trend of consumerism and to prioritize sustainability. Wow. Um, so he's like really, he's he's going for it with this whole thing. Did you hear that like a few years ago, PETA, that's the people for the ethical treatment of animals. You know, PETA. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they named him person of the year. Oh. Um, because um, of his stance on animals and ecology and so forth and so I on. I wonder, here's what I wonder. I want to hear him talk about the ecology of commercial fishing. Ah. Because traditionally, when a Catholic isn't supposed to eat meat, oh. they're supposed to eat fish. Well, yeah, because the fishermen weren't selling enough fish or something. Wasn't that the conspiracy theory? About oh, really? Oh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> the papal states, right? Were had too many fish or something? Oh, wow! I, I don't, I don't recall. <laughs> I, I won't, I won't put that out in the world if it's not true. But, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I one wonders now if he's yeah. if he's going to take everything away from these Catholics. Yeah, I don't know, but this has led some people to ask. The question, is he vegan is he, or at least vegetarian? Yeah. Right? Both he and the Vatican have kind of made it clear that they're not or no. he's not. Okay. But he does favor a very simple diet. Uh, one of his favorite meals is um, a vegetable dish, a raw vegetable dish called uh, banya cruda. Oh, ba banya cauda. Okay. Uh, which is made from, uh, it has a little sauce it's made from garlic and anchovies, uh, basically just like an olive oil. Okay. And you just dip the raw vegetables in that and eat it. And this is like his, like he, yeah, he, he loves this. He's it's also so 111 years yeah. old. So he likes a little crudite. I just, know? I just can't believe it, that an Argentine is talking about not eating meat. Yeah. There are probably people. Um, I feel like even desserts in Argentina have beef in them. <laughs> Beef sprinkles. Yeah, but you got to <laughs> sprinkle a little beef on there. <laughs> Cookies it's, with little cupcakes with beef sprinkles. It's not a meal if you don't have a steak involved. <laughs> but it, you know what? I want a happy birthday steak. I want an Argentine birthday. Yeah. Put some candles on my on, on my ribeye. Yeah. Pour some milk over it. Yeah. <laughs> Glaze it. Put I mean, some I guess icing. butter. I mean. You, yeah, you um, butter it. That's right. Yeah. yeah there you go. All right. <laughs> I prefer just to pour milk. Well, on my steak. speaking of places where they uh, they like beef, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not okay, relevant it's... to my story, but 
I'm trying to get us to Edmonton, Alberta, and the Albertans love oh, their beef. Yeah. They are a beefy land. Uh, <laughs> and Edmonton, listeners, long-time listeners, midterm long-time listeners, yeah. uh, who go back a couple years with us, will recall that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a church, uh, a pastor in Edmonton, that was just refusing to comply with any COVID anything. Uh-huh. You know there were there were there were lots of skirmishes they uh, and lots of uh, pushing back and forth. Yeah. Now Pastor Tracy Fortin of the Church in the Vine. Why is it in the vine? Not of the vine, on the vine. In the vine just seems weird. Under, amongst. There are so many prepositions that you could use. In just seems like the wrong one for a vine. Hovering over <laughs> through the vine. It through. Lovely. In's a problem. In's a problem. Yeah. It's like the one you can't you do. Anyway, <laughs> uh, church, the, the church in the vine, they refused to allow health inspectors, public health inspectors, uh, in, to come into their building on multiple occasions. What are they up to? Are they not washing their hands? Right? Are they? <laughs> what are they up to? Uh, <laughs> This was a problem. There was a lot of uh, back and forth on this. So they've they've been to courts. They've finally been through the courts, and, and they have now been found guilty and fined eighty thousand dollars. Wow. Okay. Which That's is like a- more than anybody's ever done for any of the churches that defied. The yeah. COVID stuff here in the States. Yeah. $80, I mean, dollars. That's, that's enough. Yeah. I don't know how big of a church this is. The prosecution was asking for 120,000. So hmm. the 80,000 is, is down from that. Uh, and you know, it's 80,000 Canadian dollars, which I don't know. What is that? 120 bucks in real money. I, don't I mean, know. the U S dollar is stupid right now. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Uh, no, but $80,000 is, uh, uh, it's no small shakes for a, oh. for a, a mid level in vine church. So yeah, that's probably like half a pastor's salary, right? <laughs> a third, maybe. Yeah, right. They're gonna lose a third of a pastor. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, and I, I'm sure that actually all of this defiance and all of this uh, trouble with the government has only bolstered their the pastors. You know, oh, a there's a GoFundMe right now that's yeah. taking care of that eighty thousand dollars. Oh yeah, and, and, and they'll get extra and money. All of the to play the, with the, all all of the churchgoers are just proud as punch of of. They've their, had T-shirts made. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah. there you go. There were some consequences. Yeah. All right. Well, it's not how we do else, in the U.S. It's at least symbolic. Yeah. If not, actually yeah. going to hurt them. It's uh, it's almost as if you know religions. Laws actually apply even to religious people in Canada. It's it's not well, how it works here. Well done, Canada, and even in Alberta. Yeah, and Alberta, we know that's the those those folks are crazy. It's the Alabama of Canada. <laughs> it's, it's so much nicer than Alabama. It's so much nicer. That's true. <laughs> sorry, Alabama. Although we did, we had sorry, we met, not sorry. We met some lovely people in Alabama. Oh, when we were there, the people. I have no problem with the people. Yeah. Well, like some of them. Some of them. The ones that we met. (laughs) We also saw some amazing shit when we were at Alabama's fun for atheists. For for being a who don't live there. If you if you're delighting (laughs) in insane Christians. Yeah. That's the Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it was kind of perfect for us to enjoy ourselves. Mm -hmm. You and me. That's it. All right, um, Dan, this is a horrible story, but it's the kind that does have to come up uh, because these things happen from time to time. Sure. Uh, A woman in Sudan, a 20-year-old woman. uh, I feel like we're off to a bad start. Just just with a woman in Sudan, I'm I'm suddenly very nervous. Yeah, she was recently arrested by police and has been sentenced to death by stoning. Oh my God. For adultery. What? Yeah. Uh, It's the first known case in the country for almost a decade where the death by stoning sentence has... has, uh, How do you even carry out a death by stone? Like, who do you... How many? I assume with rocks. How many people do you get 
to throw rocks at a human being until they're dead. I, I'm assuming it's not hard. That's I, my level of I faith feel like in humanity. It's very right hard. I think that there are plenty of people who would gleefully <laughs> go join in on a stoning. Oh my god! I mean, imagine if it was in this country and you could let a bunch of right wing nut job Christians oh, go after a gay person. You'd have they would stone that person without a doubt. They would. You'd have a line, yeah, of people. Also. It can't be easy to actually like that's going to take time. That's why it's torture. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why uh, in most cases when it has come up uh, in Sudan, uh, the high court, the Sudanese high court so overturns. No, you can't the do sentence. that. Yeah. Um, now, I had to kind of beef up real quick on what's been going on in Sudan uh. to understand like why, why, wh- what what has happened that you know a court decided this apparently and this sucks i didn't know this uh there was a military coup in october and how did i not know how did we not know that i I don't know because the fucking world we live in right now yeah um and the way that you know media presents all of our information yeah i did not know about it and it's like okay that's great um so there had been a transitional government in place um that was that followed the ousting of omar al-bashir and they had announced reforms uh to some of the hardline criminal laws and sharia practices and whatnot and so that was you know just two years ago and the transitional government fell during this military coup and unfortunately in such a short amount of time a lot of the reforms that they had introduced didn't have time to become concrete to really stick yeah Yeah. and so um observers are very concerned that this coup has emboldened local lawmakers and clearly judges and whatnot to roll back uh those few small gains that um country had made toward women's rights um so i would say this is something to definitely watch now it sounds like i mean they are um appealing she's appealing the decision and i hope so they but but i don't know if the article doesn't really give a sense of like what people think might happen with the high court in this case yeah so i I, you know what i'd love i'd love to present this to a christian and be like what do you think about this story yeah and then when they inevitably go uh, it's barbaric and these muslims should be ashamed of themselves uh, which they are correct yeah uh you, then you point out to them that's literally what the bible says you're supposed to do with a woman who's been who's been convicted of adultery yeah that's literally the punishment in the bible it is spelled out there yeah that's what you're supposed to do in the good book, it says this. Yeah. The so good book. If you didn't hear the air quotes. Yeah. The good book. That, that, it's the goodest of all the books, I think. <laughs> it's the best book. Why don't they call it the best book? They don't. Yeah, they don't. And that's how they we know. They admit. They admit it's not the best. It's, <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's good. There's clearly something better. There's, I mean, there's definitely better books. Have you read <laughs> Harry Potter? Jesus did an okay job writing it, but. But it's good. Have it's you good. read Lord of the Rings? There's also the good news. It's they not, have good it's not news. the best news. It's not the best news. They know there's better news. <laughs> there's better news. Um, that's what we need to. My book is going to be called the the best book. Well, let's the write best a, book with the better news. Yeah, come come learn the best news from the best book. <laughs> God uh, never existed. Yeah, exactly. Um. Do you remember a, uh, a couple months ago we talked about, or maybe it was just a, actually just a couple weeks ago, we talked about a pilgrimage in the Kashmir uh, region of India to a, a big cave, an, a, a Himalayan mm. cave mm-hmm. to sort of worship at an icicle. Um, and this was, and this was a big deal because uh, you know it was a, it's a, or it's a Hindu pilgrimage. Uh, in sort of Muslim territory, and the Muslims see it as like you know, oh. sort of a way to 
to sort of land grab or 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 just carve out Hindu space in their in their territory or whatever. Okay, yeah. So there's been violence and stuff. Well, the uh, the event the the pilgrimage is underway. Um, they they sort of you know there are hundreds of thousands of people that do it and they space it out. They you know they 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 send you in waves over the course of a month and a half or oh, whatever. Okay. Um, here's the thing. Allah has stepped in. There's a new law? No. Allah. <laughs> oh. Our, the God the, of... God. Uh, God has stepped in uh, to protect the Muslims against these encroaching Hindus. Oh. Uh, in the form of a flash flood <gasps> that... It, it's not very funny. It killed like 16 people and injured dozens of people. How is that not funny, Dan? And displaced like thousands of people. Oh my god! Like literally fifteen thousand people have had to be moved to Jesus safer locations. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That sounds like a law. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it, it's that's, on brand. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was uh, like oh, people god. literally. Ugh. I feel gross laughing right now. <laughs> well, you're a bad person, so <laughs> it's fine. We're not laughing about the dying. No. We're laughing because we just made each other laugh. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, kind of crazy. The, the pilgrimage is suspended for a few days as the rains continue to lash the, the, the region and, you know, bringing like literally people because people camp for this, you know, they, they camp. And so, yeah. Mud and rocks and everything just... Oh, God, how awful. S- swept it all away. Yeah. It was all just gone. Oh. That, I... You know, you, when you think about potential ways to meet your end, I don't want to be wiped away in a flood or something like that. <laughs> no. It just sounds awful. Yeah, it's... A, it's or a mudslide. Not, not great. Buried in mud. Yeah. Oh, God. And even if you, you know, even if you survive it, your stuff's gone. You're in the middle of a, like, just. You don't have a tent anymore. Like, how do you even, like, where do you go? There's 15,000 people that suddenly, like, need help. Well, maybe you go to those nice people who you've been trying to kick off their land (laughs) and see if they'll help, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There you go. Where was Krishna when we needed him? (laughs) All right, Dan, um, here's a name that if you haven't heard it and learned it and remember it, you probably will. Okay. Jonathan Mitchell. Do you know who he is? No. He's the... Uh, I know Joni Mitchell. Is that the same thing? No. Not even close. He's the douchebag who wrote, or basically, I think it was his his ideas and then he helped write the Texas Senate bill eight that Ooh. restricted abortion and like to like, and, uh, and deputized made, made yeah, made, yeah, made it so that sentences. everyone else can sue you. If you're even, yeah. if, if you like whisper to someone where they could go and get an abortion. Yeah. Well, he's, he is the far right's favorite boy. Oh at yeah. The moment. Um, because he, and he has like these wild, uh, crazy legal theories. He he clerked for Scalia. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and so he's of that ilk, and perhaps even more crazy uh, than Scalia. He's yeah. moving on to new to to a new project. Oh, good. Uh, because you know he feels like the whole you know Roe v. Wade thing. He that won. Got taken care of. He right? won. They won. So now he's going after uh, access to prep. Are you familiar with what prep is? Yeah, this is a this is a a wonderful mm-hmm. drug. Yep, that it's a uh, cocktail. Yeah, but that's yeah. Tr- that's right. Uh-huh. Uh, a group of drugs. Yep, that help people not get. Uh, yeah. So it not helps prevent infect- HIV transmission. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, there's two drugs, Discovy and Truvada that when taken, uh, 
together or as part of this treatment, they call it PrEP. Uh, that's the pre-exposure prophylactis is what oh, it yeah. stands for. And he he's targeting it because, or those medicines, because those <laughs> those two drugs, according to him, enable homosexual behavior. Right. He's not wrong. He says... It's, I mean, it's largely the, uh, the gay community... That takes that, PrEP. That takes also, prep. the other groups that benefit from, from the existence of PrEP, um, prostitutes, those who are sexually pr- promiscuous, and those who engage in intravenous drug use. So it's yeah. not just gay men. Can I, can I also, just say everybody benefits from PrEP? Everybody benefits from PrEP. Can I just say Absolutely. that like we all do better when there's less HIV going around? Cor- yes, yes. There's literally... So it's those groups, it's the groups, let's see, gay men, prostitutes, intravenous drug users, and everybody. Those are the only the groups that all human beings Mm -hmm. uh, and those groups are the ones. But guess who's harmed by the existence of PrEP, (laughs) Dan? Guess who's harmed? Jesus? Is Uh, it Jesus? Religious employers... Oh. who have to buy health insurance for their employees and it is required by law that the prep is on that, that list prep is on the list because it is um uh like preventative god right? god forbid we should be doing anything preventatively we right. should be doing anything useful right and so but i love this idea is this is uh this is from the lawsuit. It says it also compels religious employers and religious individuals who purchase health insurance to subsidize these behaviors as a condition of purchasing health insurance. Yeah. And I, and yeah, it does. Correct. But also like, you know what else, what, what else you have to subsidize straight sex, right? You have to well, subsidize all this, all the health things. I just, but, but here's the deal. Like, I, there's something there's something here that I'm really responding to as a gay man, which is the reductive nature of saying that homosexual behavior, everybody knows that that means sex. Yeah. Right. Homosexual behavior. I'm behaving homosexually right now. Yeah, you are. Right. And I did start gesticulating more while saying that. <laughs> <Yeah>. you, but <laughs> literally everything you do. Everything I do is homosexual, is homosexual be- behavior. Yeah. And so there you were walking through the airport here in Portland gaily. Yes. Homosexually and gaily and gaily. (laughs) How how can we write a law to prevent you from doing that? Well, apparently I need to write a law to prevent you you from doing things. You take away my prep, which isn't going to affect me. I'm in a monogamous. Yeah. You know, marriage. You're as boring as gay guys get. Yeah. It's like. As far as sex is concerned. Yeah. Well, but yeah. No, no, that's priests. <laughs> oh, who are we kidding? I they just mean sex. like, yeah, anyway, yeah. don't need to get into all of that. Yeah. But yeah, this, the, they're not stopping at Roe v. Wade and they are looking wherever they can to go after. And let's be honest here. Go after the groups that they hate. Yeah, they hate gay people they, and they, they hate prostitutes. They do not care about these groups well-being. This or, is harm reduction or their right? shared humanity with yeah. these people. Right. There is nothing. There is no, no humanity at all to this position. Right. It is just I like hating these people. Mm-hmm. I can justify hating them with my religion. Right. Therefore. Hate. Hooray. Yeah. I get to just. I'm, I literally want to craft laws to be mean. Yeah. To this group. To a, to a group that I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's really... I, it is. It, it's gross. It yeah. is gross. I, I kind of hate them. That's it. Yeah. Let's craft some <laughs> laws to be mean to them. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I, for our, our last story, I'm going to take us to Israel, where... There's something going on that I uh, I was not aware of, but it's a big deal uh, to the point where places of business are being vandalized and trashed. There are uh, there have been fights and even like riots have broken out in the streets 
about this issue. Huh. It is considered uh, a kosher issue. Uh, but it's led the, to riots. Okay. The Haredi community, the Her which, mm -hmm. which is the ultra-Orthodox community, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, comprised of multiple different sects of, right. of ultra-Orthodoxy within Judaism. And they like kosher. They're, right. they're fans of kosher. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, one of the things that I didn't realize would be covered under kosher law, but apparently is, cell phones. Okay, explain. Uh, I'm, I'm First having of all, time. you can't eat a cell phone. That's straight out the gate. <laughs> no, it's, it's ill-advised. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, when I think of kosher, I think what you can and cannot eat. Right. Uh, no, apparent, so apparently... The rabbis have been really struggling to to control everyone's intake of information. They don't. So when TVs came out, the Haredi rabbis were like, you don't get a TV. And they were very actually quite effective in preventing mm. uh, these communities. And we, I, we should say that these communities wall themselves off even from the rest of the Jewish community right. in uh, Israel. Right. And they 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 don't allow outside newspapers in. They have their own newspapers. Mm. They don't allow outside newspapers to to be sold in their community. Uh, they have, you know, they they say don't don't get a TV. And when the internet started to to pop up, they didn't want anybody to get the internet. Well, bad news. Um, the internet's how everything works now. Yeah. Uh, so they've tried to make these concessions where you can get a little bit of internet, but not all of the internet and, they, and all of this stuff. Well, self smartphones are actually, are obviously a big problem for them. So they've had, they've done, they've gone to crazy lengths to limit what people can do with their phones. Wow. Okay. Uh, literally, Cell phone providers had created a dedicated group of numbers with its own area code so that you so that everybody can keep track of who's using a Haredi phone versus a non-Haredi phone. Okay. They have blocked they've blocked groups of phone numbers so that you can't use the your phone to call obviously phone sex services, but Government <laughs> welfare agencies? What? Why? Centers for sexual and domestic violence? Oh, You can't God. call them because they want to handle it internally. Internally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you certainly can't call secular organizations that are there to, like, help people get out of these communities. Um, so, yeah. And the cell phone companies are just going along with they're it. They're just going like, along with it. As a matter of fact, yeah, yeah like, the laws are being written... But yeah, I mean, they're trying to make it so that you can't have, like, they produced cell phones that don't have any messaging apps, that don't have any, that can't have any, uh, you know, certainly not access to the full access to the internet. Like, it is just they they basically a smartphone's never going to work for them. Yeah, they just need like jitterbug, right? yeah. like <laughs> one of those little. They just need. We're, a little uh, clamshell phone. A little flip phone. That's, yeah. Yeah. And a service that you have to call to do anything on it, you know, to have all your your speed dials set up. Literally, there are like phone salespeople, like companies, like little stores, little mobile phone stores mm -hmm. are terrified because they are frequently like destroyed. They're just violence is breaks out because so these the, commu the community attacks these stores because they've they suspect that they've sold phones to members of their community or because they're willing to sell phones to members of their community. Uh, they won't or, play along or whatever or whatever. Yeah. Wow. It's a uh, meanwhile, members of the community are like secretly having like having to get secret cell phones. Yeah. And like, you know. Because they have to do business and yeah. they have to do, you know what I mean? Like they're, you know, it's how the world works now. So there you go. Uh, kosher cell phones. It's a, it's a trick. It's wild. 
Oh, Lord. Well, friends, if you uh, have a kosher, some sort of little in-your-pocket device that is, uh, that's not cult kosher, you can write into us. You can tell us about it. I don't even know what your ask is. I'm not really sure either. <laughs> so you, you come up with something and then write to us about it, probably using your unkosher cell phone. Yeah. To, to, to text us or to, to yeah. send us an email. The, it's podcast at thankgodimatheist.com. Yeah, just respond to something you've heard so far. Yeah. That would be great. The telephone number is 424-666-8442. Stick around. There's more show coming up. Well, Frank, Dan, uh, I'm going to play a clip now. Uh, it's it's brief, but it has it has touched off a bunch of controversy, and I just kind of love it. Um, this is a preacher named Jaron Pozarnski. Poz, that that's not Beautiful a real name. Last name Pozarnski. Yeah, Polish. I would imagine. Yeah, they come up with all the prettiest names. <laughs> He's, he, what he's doing is basically, I mean, it's, he's just speaking the obvious, really. Oh. It's just about uh, gender roles and, oh. and what, what they really should be like. Oh, I bet he has a good perspective on it. Well, let's find out. You know, when it comes to wives, I mean, when it comes to wives, it's, the Bible says that they're supposed to, you know, you know they're, they're, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, the Bible says. It says, let the wives be unto their husbands in everything. If I came home and my wife had a whole meal on the table and I said, you know, I want pancakes. And she's like, oh man, but I've already made hamburgers. And I'm just like, I have to have pancakes right now. Look, she should make pancakes. I mean, sometimes you feel like pancakes. <laughs> it's just, it, it's, yeah. Ladies, look. <laughs> I don't know why you complain when you've done a whole bunch of work and then someone and then a man comes along and says, throw it all away. I want you to do something different. Yeah. I don't know why that would be upsetting to you. I mean, I put myself in his wife's place <laughs> and I, I just want to keep him happy. Right. It so is. It much. is your it is your biblical role. Yeah. To just make him happy. That's what's my happiness compared to his. Right. Well, I should well, your happiness should center on his happiness. And it's if like he's when, happy, I'm happy. It's like when another country pegs their currency yeah. to the dollar. Yeah. You should peg your happiness level to your husband's happiness level. Unfortunately, a woman in that in a position probably very well understands that his unhappiness also is pegged to her unhappiness. Well, yeah. Her unhappiness is yeah. pegged to his. Yeah. And so, like, if he's not happy, she's going to be unhappy. Yeah. He'll find, he'll, he'll, he'll make, make her unhappy. He'll make sure she's unhappy. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting, but that's <laughs> how, that's how that works. I, I Jesus just can't Christ. believe anybody is still able to sell that in this day and age. Like, that he is able to actually say this to a crowd of people. Presumably half of whom are women. And and they can walk out of there going, oh, yeah, that was probably a good, that was probably, that was real nice. He's so wise. He's so wise. I'm going to, you know, some dude was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna, to do that. I'm going to test this out. I'm going to try that with my wife, see if she can make, see if she'll make me pancakes. And he had a rib roast thrown at him so fast. He... He literally didn't eat for a week because he doesn't know where the food is. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, friends, uh, because we are here in uh, Portland, we are not going to do um, emails this week. Mm. Uh, there, yeah. There's a technical difficulty with that. So we're, But we do have some people to thank. It's true. We do have people to thank. There's no believable technical difficulty. I can't. I couldn't log into the Wi-Fi. Anyway, it's fine. It's fine. We do have people to thank, Dan. We have two. 
donors uh, to the show. We have a new teacher by the name of Rachel. Ooh. So thank you very much. Well done. I, it's, it is a, always such a pleasure when we pretend to give magic powers to women. I, I say it all the time, but I just love it. I love it, too. Uh, and we have a new prophet seer and revelator. Oh, you prophet, you. Who is it? Thomas the chef. Oh, Thomas the chef. Yeah. Not only is he a prophet, but he can make a, a mean something food. I bet he can make an omelet. I'll bet he could do a lot of things. I bet he makes a really good omelet. I'm just going to say. Okay. I'm just guessing. I think it's true. I, I backed off of things because I was like, well, what if he's like a vegan chef or what if he's blah, blah, blah. I don't know what kind of chef he is. But I know I he knows know how either. to do everything. He's he, a prophet, for God's sake. He's yeah. a seer and revelator. <laughs> he can make any food you want. Indeed. And, uh, and if you'd like to join him, of course, if you'd like to become... A holder of the ironic priesthood as bestowed by us you can go to thankgodimatheist.com and click on the support tab and always Dan and as always we have our top donor to thank our lord and savior Davis Woo! more show coming up So here I am uh, at a death, grief, and belief conference, and I just grabbed the first guy that walked by, <laughs> and it happened to be Dr. Robert Niemeyer, who, uh, that's not true. I actually, like, <laughs> I, I made our hostess introduce me to you, uh -huh. uh, Bob, <laughs> and, uh, and, and because I was so interested in what your focus is, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, we this whole convention is about uh, mm -hmm. talking about grief and talking about, you know, how to deal with loss mm -hmm. and all these mm -hmm. things. And you, uh, your 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 focus is grief. Uh, you're a counselor. I am a, 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 a psychologist. I am a psychologist. I and I'm one of those rare birds, Dan, who spent a, a career really as an academic psychologist. 36, 40 years of teaching and doing research and writing. But all that while, that was also braided tightly together with the part of me that is a practitioner. And of course, the third strand being just my human experience of encountering my own life losses that probably sharpened my awareness of the significance of the unwelcome change that loss introduces into our life stories and, and how we try to make sense of that. Yeah. And so I wanted to bring you in uh, because one of the things that I find is lacking in, you know, all of our listeners are atheist or at least atheist adjacent. Uh, <laughs> and one of the things that, uh, that religions at least purport to be able mm -hmm. to do is offer a sense of meaning mm -hmm. after we've experienced deep loss, mm -hmm. after we've experienced the death of a loved one or something like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times uh, atheists don't have something to hold on to mm -hmm. uh, in terms of meaning, in terms mm -hmm. of like, what does it mean? Why, you know, in terms of finding some sort of a, a message or, or you know, some, some, some sort of growth from their loss. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, uh, I, and I know that that's, these are things that you have focused on in your, what, 30 plus books that you've written and uh, your, your career of academia. Well, and, and, and of, of course, the, the whole concept of meaning pervades human history. We might understand not only religions, but all secular philosophies, even our attempts to account for our collective or individual or tribal histories, these are all ways of, a, of seeking a narrative that makes sense of who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, what we've been through, um, at levels ranging from our very personal lives, the intimate lives we don't even share with other people, um, right on through our, our most intimate relationships where we're trying to make sense of who we are together as we form a family, for example, or a committed relation. Um, embedding ourselves in, in communities and cultures, all of these things might be understood as about a process of constructing a sense of identity, a sense of continuity. And if we ask, what do we mean by meaning? We could probably come up with 500 different definitions, but <laughs> 
I think one way of, uh, of viewing it is that meaning is what confers a sense of continuity within the, the sometimes random flux of human experience, all mm. the disruptions of living. It gives a frame of intelligibility, a sense of comprehensibility to experiences that often defy our comprehension or understanding. Yeah. And it also confers significance on our experience. Meaning is what matters. And so I want to move away from a conception of meaning that requires it to be religious or spiritual. Right. Because in some sense, the frame is still larger than that. Those traditions, be they religious or wisdom traditions of a more secular kind, they do provide a frame of comprehensibility, stories of our, our tribe or our time uh, that are big enough to help encompass human suffering, to help us understand its, its role in our lives and how we can confront and surmount it. Uh, but they're only one band of right. meaning-making. Uh, and there are many others that don't require a belief in the gods uh, or uh, particular scriptures. Uh, they're experiential meanings anchored in what we have known in our bones, um, in our practice, in our life relationships with others. Uh, we may find uh, inspiration in that wise grandmother Right, mm. who loved us better than anybody else, and, yeah. um, whose wisdom carries forward and helps confer meaning uh, on our life experiences. We may seek counseling or therapy to make sense of experiences that are traumatizing or confusing for us, and we're, we're trying to find a way to wrap our heads and hearts around that. So I want to understand meaning in a very ample way. I and, like that. Yeah, I, I like the sense, because, yeah, I... I personally don't have, I, obviously, I rejected a belief system that told me, uh, that had a whole built-in mm -hmm. concept of like an afterlife and mm -hmm. families being together forever and all of these ideas. I, I, you know, none of that gel, I, that, none of that makes any sense to me at all. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you suffer a loss mm -hmm. and you, you kind of, you know, you seek so what is, what is it what where do where do you where would you suggest someone look to find meaning after they've rejected what they were raised to believe meaning comes from? Well, of course, there's no one answer to that, and that's a good thing because we're not talking about substituting one theistic dogma for another. Right. Um, we're instead really encouraging people to recognize that meaning in some metaphoric sense, might be found, but in a more tangible sense, it's something that's constructed. We make up our life meanings as we go along. Now, we borrow from the meaning systems of our tribe and our time and um, various political ideologies and, uh, of course, a range of uh, philosophic perspectives, um, whether homespun or uh, published across the, the centuries. Um, but all of these are merely resources on which we draw in configuring the meaning of our own lives. So as human beings, we are, you know, we are our own construction. Mm. We are building uh, a sense of identity across the course of life. We may do it consciously or unconsciously. Unconsciously, we are especially likely to import the meanings that are proffered by a particular tradition or culture or time. Um, but when we critically reflect upon those, uh, when we undertake uh, a kind of search for significance into which we're often launched by an experience of significant loss and discontinuity or trauma, where the old meanings don't hold, uh, our old assumptive world, right? That whole network of taken-for-granted assumptions about maybe life being predictable or just, or um, the benevolent God will protect us, or right. we're strong enough to protect others we love from hurt, or um, that our lives have a kind of uh, foretold meaning. All of these assumptions can be up for grabs when it is our child that dies right. of overdose, our father, as in my case, who dies by suicide uh, in our youth. Yeah, then, it just pulls the rug out from under all of that stuff. Exactly. And, and, and 
instead of merely regretting that and viewing it as a case of psychological trauma that's going to involve a pharmacologic solution, to see it instead as an existential intervention that forces us to do some radical questioning. I love that. Well, that you, we, I we don't might, love the, I don't. I, yeah, I, I yeah. didn't love it when my dad died and I was forced into it. I, that's, that's exactly it. Yes. I, I love the prospect for post-traumatic growth that it may open. Um, I don't love the experience of doing it. The past right. couple of years, I have lost a, a major, what I assumed to be a, a life-defining relationship under very difficult circumstances in mm. an era of COVID and, and years of separation. Uh, that was absolutely heartbreaking. It took me right to my knees uh, and to the edge of the abyss. Um, but I am not unhappy with the, the, what it opened as a possibility for me to yet again, reluctantly, review and revise the foundational principles on the basis of which I was living to make new investments uh, in new relationships and new directions in life and to engage essentially in a process of, of uh, self-reinvention, self-reconstruction. Yeah. And I think loss does this. It is a, a big invitation um, to, to say, let's take another look at this. I've often said that uh, the most important lessons that I've learned in my life had to be beaten into me. Mm -hmm. I, I had to be bludgeoned before I really learned some mm -hmm. of the lessons that I've learned. And I think, you know, sometimes it takes a, a deep loss to, to truly understand what, what you are and what you want you, yourself to be. I, I would almost say, uh, with just a hint of overstatement, uh, that loss is the only thing that teaches us lessons in life. Ah. It's only when we are willing to, willing or unwillingly, we lose uh, that kind of assumptive world of how we thought things were, um, that we do the hard work of saying, okay, if not that, then what? If not him, her, it, them, uh, then who? Uh, that we begin to ask these, these questions about uh, who now? will I become? What meaning do I ultimately want this difficult chapter in life to have? Mm. Are there ways of maintaining a sense of connection and continuity and a continuing bond, for example, even with the person I've lost, in the case of bereavement, um, without uh, the, the automatic assumption of a heavenly reunion? Uh, mm. In what way can they remain a vital part of my life? And and there's good creative, emotional, relational work to be done around all of that, too. Oh, I love that. Uh, and, and this is as possible for a, an atheist as it is for a theist. Um, almost, I, I'm going to, look, I'm, obviously I'm, I'm biased here, but I almost think that it's more possible for those of us who don't have dogma that isn't our own holding us back mm. we all have our own internal mm. dogma mm. but i almost think that the fact that uh you know that an atheist goes into a, a grief mm. situation without this overlay mm. that that is imposed upon them mm. it almost gives us a a better shot at at, at meaningful at, at at meaningful change and meaningful uh self-reflection it's an interesting proposition, Dan, and I'm going to artfully avoid the <laughs> taking a position on that <laughs> because some of my best friends are theists. Um, oh, sure. And, and, and this is to say then, uh, you know, without uh, laughingly dismissing the idea that um, people can very thoughtfully and even very creatively um, draw on all manner of meaning systems in trying to build um, a bridge that conserves a sense of identity, connection, significance in life in the face of major ruptures. Religion may be a part of that for many, but it needn't be. I love that. And so what I would want to do is simply um, remove the exclusivity clause that suggests that uh, unless you're practicing the catechism or uh, reciting the dogma, that you're not uh, engaging in an act of meaning. What I the part of what you were saying that really did strike me as I think important is that uh, probably the atheist with fewer preconceived ideas 
about what constitutes meaning is better able to creatively devise a personal response, but um, also faces a, a, a more difficult challenge in finding validating others who can join in sort of uh, affirming mm. and living through that response. It's, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, that I, I can totally see how that could be an issue. Because it, it's like we need to find our community. And so if we're, we're not, uh, you know, in, in some ways practicing a religious ritual that connects us to our loved one, um, where do we find the community with whom we can share their stories comfortably? Mm. as if they were currently available to us uh, as partners in dialogue. We can hear their voices. We can engage them in questions. I can ask my mother her perspective on something or feel her comfort at a time of distress 20 yeah. years after her death. That, that, I mean, that is a, uh, a very real problem for a lot of, especially atheists who have left a religious tradition mm. and, if, and, and therefore their family, mm -hmm. maybe a lot of their friends, mm -hmm. a lot of their neighbors are not going to understand yeah. what they themselves are going through. Yeah. They all have a built-in community. They all have a, a, a mm. group that they can go to, and 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 there's a, a shared language surrounding yeah. the problem. But maybe you know you've got somebody in the Bible Belt who who has left their uh, mm. spiritual world, and uh, and now they don't have that community. That's what you're doing here, Dan. You're you're. You know, constructing the kind of podcast that permits that discourse, the construction of community, um, you're creating a, a possibility, or of course, not to uh, put it on you too strongly. Uh, you're, <laughs> you, are, you are part of a process of constructing a, a post-religious uh, community of concern. Yeah. Um, and that's a helpful thing to do. Uh, we live in a time where we don't just have get a chance to do this with the person who lives next door or down the block. Uh, we can do it with someone across the world who is asking similar questions and resonating to converging answers. I love. Let me ask you this: if you, if a listener is listening to this, it, let's just say it's in somewhere in the Bible Belt, and and they they hear that you know a need is there mm -hmm. for uh, for for communion with other people mm -hmm. um outside of a religious context but mm -hmm. but to talk about the deep difficult things of life mm -hmm. how do you have any recommendations for for a, a way to start that kind of a of, of a community uh, well, you could have a philosophy club a book club where you <laughs> read maurice merleau ponty or jean-paul sartre or whoever you care for uh Paul Tillich, uh, <laughs> inclining a little more religiously. Uh, you can uh, certainly find a Martin Buber figure uh, who's sort of standing uh, one foot in a, a spiritual tradition, one foot in a humanistic one. Um, people can construct all kinds of communities of discourse. Um, and I suppose that the, the crucial thing is to be able to find someone who can non-anxiously sit with your questioning. Mm. Um, and humbly share their experience without the presumption that it's authoritatively going to direct yours. And then for you to offer a similar gift of not knowing, um, compassion, humility to them, that's the crucible, I think, of uh, the formation of community. It begins between two people. It reaches out to include others um, and it's essentially a non-dogmatic act. It's one based on uh, being credulous rather than critical uh, of another's view. Mm. Um, and uh, it's in that, that kind of safe holding environment that we're able to, to really uh, open our own hearts to the deep questions, uh, the deep yearnings uh, that constitute our human condition. Uh, I think as human beings, that's it's a it's a big challenge, uh, but it's one that we can meet. Yeah, you you've men, made mention a couple times of the idea of almost a cafeteria approach of mm -hmm. taking the uh, the traditions of mm -hmm. various faith groups or or mm -hmm. you know various uh, tribal groups, whatever whatever appeal. I I'm I'm sort of 
dreaming right now on on the notion of mm-hmm. how uh, yeah that idea of do whatever you know, take whatever you want mm-hmm. and uh and how ha- and and be creative with it i love this idea of creativity in right. grieving well i do too uh i think it's an enormous resource um, let me give you a quick example because I love it. you know it may be that some of our listeners are saying, "Oh, this all sounds kind of interesting," but I don't see what the the takeaway message would be. And I, I remember some years ago I was in um, New Zealand, and I was interacting with uh, Pakihai New Zealanders. These are ones of European background: the Brits, the Scots, the Irish, and Dutch, and the rest. Um, and then the Maori. Uh, who are the indigenous people of the the country, um, respectfully interacting with uh, these two communities uh, and and they with one another. And I was having a conversation with a woman who uh, was a Dutch background and who had recently returned uh, to to the the Netherlands uh, upon the death of her father. where she found herself spontaneously engaging in a Maori ritual, very undutch, <laughs> alongside the bed of her father as he died, in the presence of the mother, in the presence of her very accomplished brother, uh, uh, who was a, a lawyer. And what she did is, uh, upon his dying, she chanted a, a, a kind of Maori prayer in that language. Um, And then she proceeded to bless the room, just naming all of these memories and experiences of when she was a little girl, she remembered going to daddy in mommy's bedroom, and she would hide under the blankets and form a little tent and play with her dolls there. And then uh, she, she also noted then that this was the bedroom in which she had been conceived and her brother and imagined the love of the parents and their pride in buying the home and what she remembered. You know, and it, it, it became a very personal way of anchoring memories of dad and family and her own childhood in the physical space of the room, the blessing of the room. She fell silent then and the brother spontaneously began speaking so uncharacteristic of this button-down lawyer. And tearfully, he was describing his little boy memories Mm. of of this space. And when he finished, then mother spontaneously began to speak. Mm. And something arose from that moment that even for this atheistic, right, contemporary Dutch family had a quality of the sacred. And it arose from this syncretistic borrowing from another culture, uh, a way of acknowledging uh, death, loss, and transition that was not their own. It wasn't coherent with any Dutch tradition, but it was coherent with a more elemental human need to dignify, in some sense, um, uh, to uh, render um, sacred and solemn a transition uh, in that family's life. And so I think that this is an example of the the creative kind of weaving together of traditions that can give meaning even to the loss of an atheist. I don't think I can ask a question that could make a better stopping point than that. So I'm going to I'm going to let let us sit with that. I think that's wonderful. Dan, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and I, I'm so glad that you're in a position to sponsor lots more of these going forward. Well, I, I, I'm just grateful that, that, uh, that you were willing to come on. Bob Niemeyer, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find uh, your books, your, your work, if they're looking for it? Well, they can look under my last name on Amazon. and So Niemeyer, N-E-I-M-E-Y-E-R, will probably do the trick. Robert is my first name. And, yeah. But the, those who are interested, especially in uh, grief therapy and uh, doing it better, if, it, as, if they're working as hospice chaplains, psychologists, counselors, social workers, we're going to be encountering loss in many forms all the time with our clients. Yeah. And if people want to learn more about uh, meaning-making in grief therapy, they can look at the portlandinstitute.org portlandinstitute.org. You'll find a whole curriculum there of, of ideas. And we got some wonderful teachers from all over the world. And 
Some of them are atheists. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Look out. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Big pleasure for me, Dan. Thanks. Well, folks, if you would like to send us an email or communicate with us about anything you've heard on today's show, please feel free to write into us, podcast at thankgodimatheist.com. Or call and leave a voicemail message. The telephone number is 424-666-8442. Yeah, hey, uh, go to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Atheist. Click the like button. And if you'd like to join one of our members-only lounges, go to thankgodimatheist.com slash members only. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much to the Red Rock Hot Club for the use of their beautiful music. And thanks to Gordon Johnston for the use of his music. And thanks to all of y'all for tuning in. From Portland, we appreciate you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.